Hello, and welcome to That's Illegal, a podcast by the Global Justice Center. Today we're joined by Moju Baolu Olofanke Okome, Professor of Political Science, African and Women's Studies at Brooklyn College CUNY, and the co-founder of the Bring Back Our Girls NYC campaign. Born in Nigeria, Dr. Okome has worked on international development issues as a consultant for the United Nations and USAID. Five years after the Chibo girls were kidnapped, we are discussing national and international responses to Boko Haram's mass targeting of women and girls in Nigeria and the challenges of providing holistic care for survivors of sexual and gender-based violence. Hello, and thank you so much for joining us. To begin our conversation, would you like to give us some background and the context of what exactly happened on April 14, 2014, in the town of Chibok in northeastern Nigeria? Okay, so Chibok is in Borno State. And like you said, it's in the northeast of Nigeria, very close to Cameroon. Um, On the night of April 14, Uh, This insurgent group, Boko Haram, went to federal government girls' secondary school in Chibok, where there were girls who were preparing for an exam. And they abducted 276 girls. They pretended to the girls that they were Nigerian security personnel that had come to save them from being abducted. So, you know, they were able to take away 276 girls. They burned the school and they went into Sambisa forest with the girls. The community found out soon after and alerted the Nigerian government uh, authorities that the girls had been abducted and that they had been taken into Um, Sambisa Forest, but the government did not respond. And no response was forthcoming from the government for about uh, three weeks when they were saying, oh, it's a lie, it didn't happen. And, you know, that gave Boko Haram a head start Mm -hmm. in taking away the girls. As they were taking them away, some of the girls managed to escape They were being taken away in these trucks, so some of them jumped down. And actually, some got really badly hurt as a result of it, but about 54 of the girls were able to escape. The rest of them were taken into the forest, and uh, some of the parents were tracking them, still trying to get government to help to rescue. But because there was this nonchalance, um, nothing serious was really done. So initially, only the ones who were able to escape, you know, made mm-hmm. it out of captivity. So to maybe better understand why Boko Haram targeted women and girls in this case, do we know what Boko Haram stands for? What are the root causes of the insurgency? Boko Haram, many people know them by the popular translation or interpretation of what their name is said to be. Actually, the group itself does not call itself Boko Haram, but people say, you know, they believe that Western education is abominable, 
or uh, unacceptable and they target students who are in educational institutions for this reason. I think it's a multi-layered meaning, you know. So part of what the group is, is the core of the group, they are Kanuri people from northeastern Nigeria. The Kanuri people, they had a kingdom called Kanembronu that was actually very famous and very powerful in the era before the coming of the Fulani Caliphate. Mm -hmm. The Fulani Caliphate came as a jihad in the 19th century. You know, in the period Im immediately preceding Nigeria's colonization, as a result of the effectiveness of the Fulani Jihad, there was the overthrow of many Hausa rulers who were the ethnic group in that area. Some of them were Muslim and some of them were non-Muslim. And the critique of the Fulani Jihad was that the Muslim ones were not practicing the um, most virtuous kind of Islam. They were mixing Islam with what the uh, Hausa Fulani said was paganism. They were not devout enough. And so they were bringing a uh, renewal of Islam that was more virtuous, more devoted to Allah, and so forth. So after the collapse of the Kanembronu kingdom, there were people who have never forgotten, who want a revival of that empire, you know. People call it kingdom and empire, you know. They wanted a revival, and some of the people in Boko Haram are sort of irredentist in this way. They want a coming back to power of the Kanuri empire or kingdom. So there's that as part of the cause. There's also a jihadist element that they too are making a critique about immorality, about lack of uprightness among Muslim leaders, and also about collusion between government and, and these leaders to exploit and oppress the poor. So part of what they also say about Western education is not only about its immorality in the way that people understand it, there's that. There's also the fact that if you're a poor person, and your children go to school, it's no use. They're not going to be able to do anything with that education because they won't get jobs. So what's the point of sending your kids to school? And I think, you know, when the group first emerged, it was led by this guy called um, Yusuf Mohammed. And it was a group that was doing a lot of good works. It was preaching against all these excesses of the people in power. And then it was doing good works. It was feeding people. It was um, giving children free Islamic education. They were giving people assistance with you know, medical care. And many people then saw them, because the government of Nigeria was not doing this for poor people. So they saw Boko Haram as an alternative and saw them as these good people that were helping. You know, This was before Boko Haram started the killings. So there are allegations that some of the people who are responsible for the rise of Boko Haram are also Nigerian politicians from the Northeast. So they wanted to use Boko Haram against their political enemies to threaten them. Because, you know, part of what happens in Nigerian politics is that violence 
is used against opponents. So some of these people sponsored Boko Haram and were you know, using them to intimidate their political opponents. I think it spiraled out of control because they could no longer just pick and choose who Boko Haram could attack. So there's that element as well. There's also the element of Boko Haram becoming so strong and then the governments of North, northern Nigeria were not able to control them. So Kano was one of the places where things came to a head. And the government of Kano State went against Boko Haram and tore down their biggest mosque and actually also arrested a lot of people, a lot of their members. And, you know, there were allegations that torture was used. So there were these confrontations that where the government of Nigeria wanted to restrict the power of Boko Haram because it was growing to become this movement that was saying that it was pro-poor. And of course, the majority is the poor people, you know, so state governments decided to eliminate them. But this backfired. And the federal government also got involved. I mean, so people were detained. Yusuf Mohammed, the original founder, he was detained. So many women and children were also detained. It was alleged that people were tortured. And actually, Yusuf Mohammed was shot in the back while in police custody. So this was when the group then got really radicalized and began to use violence, not only in terms of attacking schools, but attacking government and attacking prominent Islamic rulers. Since the 2014 kidnapping was not an isolated incident, can you explain how gender norms played into the treatment of the Chibo girls? Northeastern Nigeria has the lowest indicators uh, when it comes to education. And when it comes to girls' education, the figures are actually very atrocious. So um, there's not very strong support for girls' education. And so there's a gendered aspect of access to education that when families have to make a choice, and when it's poor families, okay, so we have to also say there's class, because wealthy people educate their girls because they don't have to make the, the choices. And sometimes with the wealthy, a girl is educated. But you, you might find some girls are married at the age of 14, which is considered the age of puberty. You know, but with those wealthy girls, there would be um, an agreement with the spouse that the, the marriage is not going to stand in the way of the girl's education. So that girl might actually end up, you know, going as far as she wants with higher education. And some of such women have higher degrees. So I have colleagues who were married very early who became professors, you know. I have colleagues who were married early who became doctors and lawyers and whatever, you know. So child marriage is also another issue, but that's not the focus here. The thing about child marriage is that it ended up also being manifested in this case. So in an environment where when people are poor and they're weighing how to put family resources that's very scarce, they're going to put it on boys' education rather than girls' education. The understanding being the girl is going to marry into another family and for, you know, would not be able to help 
her natal family. So let's invest in the boy because then he has a responsibility to the family. And so many families then choose to educate their boys over the girls. But these are families that have decided. Now, there's also not enough understanding about the fact that this is actually an area that has a strong minority Christian presence from way back. So many of the girls who were abducted are Christian girls. And I think, you know, one of the things that this does, this abduction, is that it discourages people further from sending their girls to school because of the perception, and I think justifiable perception, that this is not safe because there's not enough security. And so why would you want to go and endanger your child when you know that somebody could swoop in and take them and you have no recourse? So there's a gendered element to it also because I think, you know, the, a lot of times when you have conflict, and that conflict is ethnic in nature, sometimes people are interested in using violence against women to make a point that um, challenges the masculinity of the other group. So, because, you know, <laughs> there's a whole lot of masculinist tropes about women being the ones that are weak and, you know, they're the symbol of um, ethnic pride. And so men go to war to fight these wars to defend women and children. So if people can swoop in and take your women and children, then they're making a point that you are impotent. So there's that element in it too. Then, you know, in terms of girls going to school, if you want to challenge people's commitment to education, you know, all you have to show them too is that your children are not safe. We can do anything to your children. And that sent that message to the community and the families that sent their kids. Then, you know, if you want to also say that we are the ones in charge and the Nigerian government is weak, this is another way in which you demonstrate that. That, you know, they're going to federal government's college or high school. You know, we are the ones that say what matters here. So they did that. And then, you know, I think there's also been some analysis that shows that when these kind of groups, um, insurgents, work, they also want educated girls, you know, because they can use them for multiple tasks, you know, like keeping records and all these um, other support activities for their group. Plus, it gives them additional prestige that these are valuable girls, you know. And there are people who also funnily blame, bring back our girls for making these girls high profile because this has made them more valuable to the group because these are girls that somebody cares about. So maybe the argument that those people are making is that a lot of the activism has now further endangered the girls. In any case, you know, there's serious gendered elements. So with captivity, what these people said very clearly in their 
propaganda is that they had captured these girls and they were going to marry them. And, you know, they even named the amount of the dowry, like mm -hmm. bride price that they were paying. And as far as they are concerned, they have married the girls because they are ready to pay this bride price. Okay, so these are not, this is not marriage. This is brutality. It's holding somebody against their will. It's a human rights abuse. And what they're doing is inflicting sexual violence on these girls who also are being used for domestic servitude because they have to do cooking and cleaning. And they are assigned to Boko Haram members as wives and have to do anything that that involves. So, you know, it's torture, it's brutality, it's exploitation, it's, it's just wrong on many levels. And the most painful part of it is the initial nonchalance and ineptitude and lack of organized and focused response by the Nigerian government. That really is heartbreaking because, and I think that it's not only gender, like I said, it's class. If this were rich people's children, there would have been immediate action. It would have been overwhelming response. I don't think we'll be here five years down the road still saying that there are 112 of these young women still in captivity. So going back to the response, do you want to give us a little bit of detail about what is Bring Back Our Girls campaign? And especially as a co-founder of Bring Back Our Girls NYC, do you want to talk a little bit about what the Nigerian community has done in New York City to advocate for the girls? Bring Back Our Girls was founded by Nigerian women and men in Nigeria. Immediately after actually preceding the abduction of our Chibok girls on April 14, as I was trying to say to you before, uh, February the 14th in 2014, 59 boys were all killed in federal government secondary school in Buni Yadi, which is a village in Yobe State, again in the Northeast. And there were protests by Nigerians about this. And, you know, it did, I, I guess it didn't receive as much attention because a lot of times, you know, news internationally, news about Africa does not get enough coverage. So that was still there. And many of the people who came out and did this protest were women's rights organizations. And men also joined. So when the abduction of the girls happened, initially there wasn't clear-cut information, even from the Nigerian media. So, and there was mixed communication because it was announced that they were found, that they had been saved and, you know, they're fine and they're now in government custody. Come to understand that that didn't happen. So the groups that had protested the massacre of these young men reconstituted and said, you know, we are going to insist that these girls must be rescued. And then they came up with the hashtag and began. And, you know, one of the people who was uh, a member of this group 
used to be a minister for education in Nigeria. Her name is Obi Ezekweseli. And there were other, you know, the remarkable thing about Bring Back Our Girls is that many of the women who were the founding members are women who are middle class and wealthy and prominent. And, you know, they're from all over Nigeria. All religions were represented. There were also young people. There were men as well. You know, so this was very remarkable. And, you know, as a Nigerian woman who also believes in women's rights, immediately I heard about the, the movement was founded. I asked, you know, what can be done to help? And so we had this online group where we'll, we would be talking. And at the time also, you know, there were people in New York City who there were two protests. One was uh, organized by a South African woman. It was done at Union Square. And then another one was an African-American woman, which was done by, at the UN. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, um, I go to demonstrations and protests, but, I mean, you find very few professors <laughs> out on the front lines protesting. And as a matter of fact, a lot of people said to me, the most effective thing to do is to be writing op-eds and position papers and things like this. But I'm a mother. I'm a Nigerian woman. I have children. Uh, The expectations that I have in terms of my children's well-being and safety. I went to boarding school in Nigeria. I also, all my sisters, I have three sisters, they're in Nigeria, they have children. My youngest sister has kids. At the time, actually, one of my, um, the sister I follow, her child was in boarding school. And I had to think about, okay, as a person of conscience, what's the right thing to do? A South African woman organized a protest. It was a one-time thing. An African-American woman organized a protest. So what kind of moral authority do I have as a Nigerian woman to sit and say, well, I'll just be writing position papers? And as a matter of fact, some of my colleagues even told me, these girls are never going to be found. You're wasting your time. So I said, well, you know, I'm ready to actually waste my time. Because if this was my child, would I be kind of, okay, I'll just be writing position papers. So I decided that a group should be formed, and some of the people that came to the protest, I called them together and we formed a group, Bring Back Our Girls NYC. It wasn't just Nigerians, it was, you know, open to everybody, so there were people, Americans from all uh, religions and walks of life. We wanted it to be interfaith because a lot of the problems in this world is over religious disputes. And I think it's only interfaith dialogue and interfaith peace building that would help us to solve these problems and convince people that there are other ways of negotiating conflict than targeting innocent people. So that's why I led the formation of the group. Also, my children were asking me, what are you going to do, mom? And I felt that if you're a person of conscience, 
if you are espousing values, when something like this happens, you have to actually step up and do not just anything, but, you know, focus on helping to solve the problem. And you've also done some groundwork in Nigeria, right? And interviewed some of the girls that have returned and also done work with the internally displaced peoples. So do you want to speak a little bit about what you learned? Okay, yes. I felt, although I was um, impatient with people who were talking about op-eds and doing research, I also believe that it's important. And I believe, you know, the kind of research that needed to be done is not the straightforward, objective, scholarly research that does empiricism. It's research that tries to prioritize the voice of the people who are affected and traumatized in this crisis. And, you know, I think that many people don't know that as the problem, the crisis in the Northeast has displaced, the low end of the assessment is like 2 million people. Mm -hmm. The high end is 12 million. Some of them are in um, internally displaced persons camps or IDP camps. Majority of them are not. And those who are not, who do not have family that would shelter them, are sometimes out in the open, just making do however they can, or in abandoned buildings, and so on and so forth. And nobody is taking care of them. You know, they have to take care of themselves, and they fled from home. And, you know, in the journey, trying to escape, they also go through a lot of trauma. Originally, you know, when the people who told me, oh, they, they are these internally displaced people, and they're at a location in Abuja, they, they gave me a low number. By the time we got there, that group had exploded because more people had arrived, and they were in these um, half-completed buildings where the landlord of one of the houses had given them permission to squat there. And then, you know, this community had exploded to, like, almost three to five times the number of the people because people just kept arriving. So there are no services being provided to them. They don't have means of livelihood. And some of them end up just going and begging. The ones who have skills try to go and be day laborers, you know, doing odd jobs and things like that just to make ends meet. So when I went and saw the place where they were, it was makeshift you know, and there were so many children. And then, you know, there were so many heartbreaking stories about when they were coming, that particular group. Some children, they died on the way because they had snake bites. And, you know, they died. And the amount of pain and trauma of people having to just take off and leave everything so that they would go find safety elsewhere, it was very heartbreaking. Luckily... There was, uh, you know, because the, some of the people who helped me, the woman I was staying with, worked with the Ministry of Women's Affairs. So I was able to ask for the ministry to help this community, and they had started 
trying to help them, but there was a gross inadequacy of resources. Now, the situation in the camps is also not ideal. Many of the camps are overcrowded. There are insufficient services. Some of the officials who are responsible for these services are not ethical. So in some situations, and I don't think it's, it's isolated to Nigeria, you have people who are extorting sex in exchange for services. There's an inadequacy in terms of education and health care. And even, you know, just nutritious, adequate nutritious meals. So there's overstretch, there's inefficiency, there's unethical practices happening. I am not sure how secure those camps themselves are in terms of safety for people. Because some, a few times Boko Haram has sent suicide bombers to some of the camps, you know. And there are also allegations about laxity in terms of security that, you know, some of the children who are, you know, without their parents may be subjected to trafficking, abduction in the camps too. Now, when people have gone through all that trauma, the camps also should have psychosocial support. So far, the support of a lot of the humanitarian assistance and psychosocial support is being given by international agencies. Okay, so I have to also make a distinction because the original Nigerian government, the Good Luck Jonathan administration is no longer in power. Good Luck Jonathan lost the presidential election to Muhammadu Buhari, who is now the president of Nigeria, in 2015. When Muhammadu Buhari was campaigning for the 2015 election, he said he was going to prioritize the rescue of the girls. And, you know, he actually met with Bring Back Our Girls. I went to Abuja for that meeting. I was very impressed because when presentations were being made, he took notes himself. When he spoke, it was clear that he was listening. He made a commitment and said, these girls are going to be rescued. The parents of, some of the parents of the girls were there, people from the Chibok community were there. This impressed me because somebody who is a president of Nigeria met with the group, met with the parents, showed compassion, showed that he was listening. And I have to say that under his watch is when majority of the girls that have been rescued were rescued and negotiations for release was made under his watch. But as far as I'm concerned, as long as any of those young women, and by the way, thousands of other Nigerian women and girls that have been taken captive by this group are still in their custody, the struggle continues. So if, as President Buhari promised, if it is true that he's committed and is going to be prioritizing the rescue of these girls, he's still on the line for that. He still has to rescue each and every one, not of just the Chibok girls. Remember, you know, after Chibok, Boko Haram also went to this high school in Dapchi and abducted girls, 105. Again, to give this administration credit, they were able to rescue majority of them. One of those girls is still being held by Boko Haram.
and her name is Leah Sharibo. The story is that Boko Haram said it was only going to release the girls if they converted to Islam. And she was the only holdout that said she wasn't going to convert, and they're holding her. So this has energized a lot of Christians who are saying, we must rescue Leah. This is admirable. However, I think any woman, girl, child, man that is being held captive by Boko Haram must be rescued. There's no life that is more valuable than any other life. Religion ought not to matter. All of us are human beings. So, you know, prioritizing somebody's pain because, oh, this is my child, oh, this is my sister, oh, it is my, you know, somebody from my ethnic group, somebody from my religion, I think is wrong. So for me, actually, my issue goes beyond the Chibok girls to all the captives. And I really want peace in northeastern Nigeria because so many lives have been disrupted. So much pain has been inflicted. And this is totally unnecessary. And, you know, the challenge is one that belongs to the Nigerian government. The job of a government, the reason why government exists, the primary reason is to ensure the safety and security of people. The Nigerian constitution says so. All constitutions actually have this principle in it. So the Nigerian government is the one that has the primary responsibility. If it's not able to dispatch this responsibility, it should ask for help. And again, this administration has done better in that regard than the previous one. Because that previous one kept saying we don't need help, Nothing is happening. It's a lie. No girls were abducted. So much so. There was so much disinformation by the Good Luck Jonathan administration that not only did they not seriously look for the girls, they were able to convince many Nigerians that it's a lie. Girls were not abducted. So many Nigerians chose to believe the Nigerian government, which is normal. I mean, you trust your government, right? And that also, it made it so that the people who were campaigning, advocating, protesting, they were presented to the Nigerian public as anti-Nigeria, unpatriotic, just uh, hell-bent on damaging the reputation of the government for no reason. So this divided unity to say that these girls needed to be rescued. But this administration has won another election, and there is no reason for them to think that this is going to get on the back burner. These young women must be rescued. The people who have been rescued, I also have to give this administration credit. I think under the last administration, some of them started school, and they happened to be in this American university in Meduguri, which was established by Atiku, one of the two candidates for presidency. So those girls in American University, some people may have seen them in some documentaries. They're going to a good school. They have a therapist that's working with them. They're being given support to bring them up to par so that they can compete with peers in school. But I think one of the issues with some of the, one of the girls at American University is that she came back with a baby. 
and she was told that she could only stay in the school and her baby couldn't stay. I have, I mean, I think that makes absolutely no sense because it increases the trauma. It's hard enough for you to be brutalized and, you know, forced to become a mother. And then you're bonding with that child and then they take the child away and say you should concentrate on your education. So they see the child as like a member of Boko Haram, right? No, they see as the a... child as an impediment to her education. So for her to be able to concentrate, send the child away to her parents. Your parents can take better care of the child. That might actually be true, that the parents have more experience, you know, with child rearing than a young woman who, you know, but separating this <laughs> young woman from her child, it makes no sense. Also, there's stuff about how many times the parents can visit and all kinds of restrictions that I think is absolutely unnecessary, you know, ridiculous. And it challenges the whole thing about ensuring that there's psychosocial well-being. But let's put that aside and realize that it's not only our Chibok girls that were traumatized. So we know about them because so many girls were abducted at once. But let's be clear that before they were abducted, after their abduction, there have been other abductions. That some of the women and girls in the internally displaced camps may also be Boko Haram victims. If Boko Haram can go into the camps, send suicide bombers and stuff, there are people who are living under constant fear of what might happen to them. There are probably people who have been sexually assaulted and been subjected to gender-based violence in this whole situation. So there's need to also take care of them. As far as I know, it's organizations, international agencies, and organizations that are doing this. They're doing it with the cooperation of the Nigerian government. I don't think that whatever is being done is organized enough. And I don't think it, you know, we have a framework that realizes how huge this problem is. And that when you say you are doing that, it's not like you're going to talk to people for three weeks and teach them how to sing songs and dance, and you're done. This is a long-term commitment, and I'd like to see that kind of commitment that they would have put into this if this was the president's daughters that were affected. Because when I'm looking at what's happening with people, what I want for myself is what I want for the next person. And this is what it means for people to feel like they're valued by their government. Because what we're looking for in this world, and you know, the whole world is saying it in the Sustainable Development Goals. We're looking for human dignity. We're looking for human security. We're looking for social protection. These are not just words. You know, you need to put policies in place. You need to train people to deliver. You need to show citizens of Nigeria, and this is directed to the Nigerian government, that they're valuable, that you know their, their plight and hopes and dreams and aspirations are important to the Nigerian government. And so anything that the international community can do to help the Nigerian government to ensure that this is a reality, that people are not just hearing talk, 
they're feeling it is what they should do. So then in terms of the international community and the commitment that they have shown or lacked, do you think Nigeria can possibly apply UN Security Council resolutions on women, peace and security to protect its women and girls from violence under the conditions of this armed conflict? Okay, so, you know, the problem that I have with Nigeria is not about whether or not laws, resolutions, conventions exist. It's about implementation. Because the Nigerian government is a signatory to a whole lot of international treaties, conventions, and, you know, it's not just um, Resolution 1325. There's also CEDO, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women. Nigerian women's rights organizations have been campaigning that CEDAW needs to be domesticated, integrated into Nigerian law in a way where all the provisions would apply to Nigerian women's lives in meaningful ways and real ways. There's also uh, the African Women's Charter, okay, the Maputo Declaration, that it also talks about rights that women have and conditions that should be made available to women. So 1325 is not the only one. There's about eight of these resolutions that the Security Council has passed. You know, so what I want is implementation. And in order to implement, there's need for domestication, there's need for training personnel, there's also need for really demonstrating through efficient delivery of services and implementation of policies that there's seriousness about this. And by the way, Nigeria is also part of this Education for All initiative, and we have approximately 12 million children out of school in Nigeria. I think it's about the largest number of children out of school in the world. So what's the point of being part of progressive efforts to say that you care about social protections, to say that you are committed to justice and equity and human rights, and you are not seriously putting conditions in place that ensure that these things are realized. So this is what, this is, these are the responsibilities of any serious government. And you know, what I'm saying about the Nigerian government can, might as well apply across the board in the continent, that Africans are sick and tired of having people in government that are just going to sit there and be signing all kinds of undertakings that they have no capacity or maybe will to implement. Enough is enough. So in terms of accountability, I wanted to go back a little bit to the negotiations that took place to return some of the girls. So what happened there? Um, what were the conditions? Okay, so I wish there was transparency about this. Okay, so the people who would know is actually the International Committee for the Red Cross, and they participated in the negotiation. So if they would say what happened, we would know. The Nigerian government also was party, and they could say something. But, you know, there hasn't been transparency in saying that this is exactly what happened. But what was reported was actually some of the girls 
refused to be liberated. Why? There's a lot of speculation. Some of the speculation is that, you know, there is probably a Stockholm syndrome. There's probably shame because they feel they have been violated. There's probably also apprehension about maybe they will not be accepted. And I don't think that apprehension is unwarranted because there are cases where girls have returned or women have returned and because they have children that were produced as a result of their being captives and being subjected to sexual assault, they have babies. And then people in their communities label these children as Boko Haram and as you know, dangers to the community because they're just going to become like their mm -hmm. fathers. And people are subjected to being ostracized and being, you know, just verbally right, um, so the, the girls abused. are seen the girls are seen as radicalized or even sexually tainted right There's sexually tainted radicalized the enemy within and all kinds of really un, un, uncharitable ways of responding to people who are already traumatized you know this also this kind of responses would fester when there's no attempt to help, you know, because part of what needs to happen is actually peace building, that many of the people who are responding this way are doing so because Boko Haram has killed their family members. Boko Haram has taken everything they own, has burned their houses, has subjected them to violence, you know. So there is a need not just to say people should return, but to help to foster meaningful peace in the community if you just allow people to be you know leave them to their own devices you cannot blame somebody for feeling that the people who came and killed my children should not be allowed to come in here so there's a need to seriously find ways of helping people to re-embrace and incorporate those who have been torn away from their communities in these violent ways to come back. There's also, you know, something that needs to be done with the people who have been traumatized to help them to get back to some kind of normalcy. You can't just leave people to their own devices and say, okay, you've been rescued, you're fine. Right. Because that is not, not problem free, right? Yeah, that is not happening. It's not going to happen. And I am so concerned about the future, that even after this conflict ends, its effects are going to be with us for a long time. And if we don't do the work of helping people to find peace, helping people to recover, we're going to have other kinds of violence. And we might enter into this cycle of violence because there are also young boys who have become combatants They've been traumatized. They're being traumatized. Some of them are recruited under really horrific conditions mm -hmm. where sometimes you are made to kill people you are related to, you know, to toughen you and make you violent. There are drugs being used. When you say, okay, now the conflict is over, what are you going to do with those people? You have to also make them 
help them to recover their humanity and integrate them into communities. So Nigeria has a huge task on its hand, and you don't wait until you know crisis spirals out of control before you start you know, building strategies that would help. Trauma is complex, and there has to be that understanding that when people are traumatized, it's also the responsibility of the government to help to develop a framework that is going to help to heal people, to help people find healing, to help them to find peace, because there's the external peace and there's the internal peace. And when people make all these plans and talk about social protection, because the co Committee on the Status of Women meetings just ended, the focus was on social protection. There were delegations from Nigeria talking up a storm. There's no social protection if we have all these people in the country who have been traumatized, who are dislocated, who are at their wit's end about what the future is. And you're talking social protection. So Nigeria needs to get to work. The challenge is huge, but it's doable. I mean, even as uh, if you look as an outsider at the media coverage, right, there's this misconception that we hear the word rescued, that some of the girls were rescued, all of the news coverage is over, you know, we're over it, but that's not the case, right? And that's we haven't the seen, the fifth anniversary is right here, and we don't see as much coverage. I mean, before we remember Michelle Obama posing yes. with the image of Bring Back And that girls. was gratifying, and I think, you know, um, I have to commend everybody that has spoken out but, you know, um, it's a struggle that is not a short-term thing. For me, it's not a new cycle. It's a challenge that continues. 112 of those girls are still in Boko Haram captivity. Like I said, Leah Sharibu, who was also taken captive, is still in Boko Haram captivity. There's um, three humanitarian health workers were also abducted. Two of them were slaughtered by Boko Haram in a very public way. One of them, uh, Alice Ngada, is still being held by Boko Haram. Those are the ones that there's most attention on. Together with them are thousands of other women and children, and they're boys, and they're even men. They must be rescued. They must be you know, reconnected with their families and communities. And then the challenge begins of making them whole, helping them to feel the inner peace, helping the communities to feel peaceful about the fact that some have been, you know, part of the pain that was inflicted on others, and helping the innocent children that were produced as a result of this violence to be incorporated into loving communities. If Nigeria can do this well, the country will gain tremendously. If we don't do it well, we're going to be facing trauma almost in perpetuity. So actually going back to the trauma, could you talk a little bit about what the girls who returned experience? So is there fear? What kind of symptoms, long-term symptoms do they have? Fear, you know, also a bit of survival, survivor's guilt some of the girls who are now free, 
uh, unhappy because their friends and you know they even refer to them as my their sisters are still in captivity and they know how hard things are you know because i was reading a story today that was published by reuters by this journalist who has been following this case also a nigerian journalist and the girls when they were interviewed the ones at this american university in yola have been saying that they are sad you know although they are free and they're going to this very posh school they know what the conditions are in sambisa forest it's the rainy season now so these are girls who are out there you know open to the elements they're being sexually abused on a consistent basis they may be insufficient food if they're sick there's no access to medical care so many of the girls who are safe are still traumatized by this because why are they? And then, you know, their parents also. Since this um, abduction in 2014, about 19 parents have died, predominantly from the stress of having their children in captivity. A lot of the ones who haven't died have conditions that you associate with stress, high blood pressure, um, sometimes even, you know, mental instability, because just the thought of what your child is going through can make a person crazy. So you have that. There's also siblings, don't forget, that they're siblings of these girls, and it's painful. And every time there are these anniversaries, what the Bring Back Our Girls groups in Nigeria try to do is to include the family of our girls to try to give them comfort and also to keep advocating, you know, for rescue. So it's not easy even after people are free. So there are also psychosomatic symptoms like pain that, you know, <laughs> with all kinds of medical exam it's not people are not able to see what the source of the pain is and you know deal with it there's fear there's night terror there's the fact that some of them cannot sleep with the lights off um, there's all kinds of flashbacks and things like that so it affects everybody right yes. it's not just the girls i mean not just the girls it affects the parents it affects also mostly parents and siblings of girls that are still in captivity because their imagination goes into overdrive about what might be happening. And do they have any source of assistance at all? Well, you know, um, some of the Bring Back Our Girls people help. Mm -hmm. And actually, one organization that has helped a lot is Muritala Mohammed foundation he has helped siblings he has this um, program where it sponsors sibling some of the siblings of these um, young women this education has helped with medical assistance to parents and also counseling you know so civil, civil society. society support i think i've also read mm -hmm. that some of the international agencies have done psychosocial support, but it's short term and it's not coordinated. And you know, the need is greater than 
the available intervention. Plus, I don't think that there's high enough priority put to issues of psychosocial support. There's more um, attention to giving people food and you know providing some kind of shelter than to taking care of their psychological and also social integration needs. So in terms of the international community, you wonder how much commitment is there. When it comes to resources, mm -hmm. you know, if we say we care about things like this, how much are we devoting to it in terms of resources to organizations that we know are effective? So if you notice, a lot of governments are cutting back on assistance, on um, contributions to the UN. And I hear that the US in particular has cut like 700 million, or is it, uh, 700 million dollars right, from so the US's uh, budget this year. So to kind of um, bring our conversation to conclusion and wrap it up, can you talk a little bit about the US and what the US has done and what maybe we here in New York City or in the US generally can learn from the kidnappings? Okay, so under the Obama administration, Michelle Obama brought high prominence to this issue. And President Obama himself was very compassionate and stated very clearly that the American government was ready to assist. The Good Luck Jonathan administration initially said that it didn't need help. After a while, it decided to accept help. It didn't go well because I think there were just problems in terms of providing the assistance. This is not just something that is affecting Nigeria. It's affecting a region, a part of West Africa, of about four countries, Nigeria, Chad, Cameroon, and Niger, uh, the late Chad Basin. So there's been more coordination of a multinational task force that is directed at fighting Boko Haram. I think there's been American technical assistance from during the Good Luck Jonathan administration, and it's probably continuing now. There's been assistance from France. And you know, basically, these countries consider this to be a strategic area because of the oil <laughs> you know, that is coming from the Gulf of Guinea because Nigerians are being tormented by Boko Haram. So, and then there's also the base, there's a drone base in Chad, there's stuff that they're doing in um, Niger. So there's in interest in this region anyway, and that is making there be more support than maybe would ordinarily have happened. So what is needed really is prioritizing the human security of the people in this region rather than you know, doing stuff for strategic interests of powerful countries that maybe coincide with the strategic interest of weak countries. And also, I think President Trump met with some of the Chibok girls who are in the US, yeah. You know, just these PR meetings mean nothing, okay? PR meetings are not policy. And when the Nigerian president came, for the courtesy visit when the Trump administration began. There was commitment made about helping to fight Boko Haram. As far as the president is concerned, 
President Trump. This is a Muslim versus Christian thing, and he's going to go and defend the Christians. This is a misreading of the whole thing, because Boko Haram is killing even probably more Muslims than Christians. And we can't have a situation where we're doing Islamophobia. Many of the people who are criticizing, fighting Boko Haram are Muslims. Many of the people who are helping the people who have been traumatized are Muslim. So we should not put a religious reading on this. And there are some people also who, because they want resources from Islamophobic people, would play this as a religious conflict, a clash of civilizations. It isn't that. What needs to happen needs to be, if anybody is interested in solving this problem, there has to be understanding that it has to be an interreligious dialogue. There has to be approaching people as people. Whether a person is Muslim or Christian ought not to matter. What should matter is that we are all human and we're all deserving of being valued. We're all deserving of being supported. If we are valued and supported and allowed to have our basic human needs, it would be easier for us to reach our full human potential. If I deserve it, the people in Northeastern Nigeria deserve it. Thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with a friend or rate us on iTunes. To learn more about the work of the Global Justice Center, visit our website, www.globaljusticecenter.net. Thank you.